to uh, week 10, final week of our series called Law School. If you're hopping in for the first time, we uh, have called this series Law School because in it we have been looking through the um, law of God, more commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments, and because it is the tenth and final week of the series, it makes the most sense to me to look at the tenth and final commandment, which says, Thou shalt not covet. So before we get to the passage that uh, is going to help us understand this particular commandment, I want to point out something about it. Um, I have always been really um, encouraged by, uh, here we go, sorry, it's like a psychological thing, feeling pinched up here. Um, I've always really been encouraged to find out how another uh, passage of Scripture has, uh, has impacted another person. It always makes me feel like when, I, when I'm, you know, in that passage like I'm standing on holy ground, which to, to a degree we are in the entire Bible. But let me, let me give you a couple of examples of this. I've shared this story with you before. Um, Charles Wesley and William Holland, uh, two people who were instrumental in a movement history remembers as, as the Great Awakening, uh, they had their lives completely transformed when they got together and decided to study the book of Galatians. And um, they had an intellectual understanding of God. They wanted to know if God was real. They wanted to experience him in a personal way. So they got together over that Bible study, and they experienced a personal revival, and it kind of just kept rolling and picked their heads up, and it, it wound up being hundreds of thousands of people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, all through the book of Galatians. And I remember we taught through Galatians as a church back in the fall of 2018, and I told that story when we began that series. Uh, another example is Charles Spurgeon, you may have heard of. He's sometimes referred to as the, the great prince of preachers. He had his, um, his life turned around when he heard a, a message out of Isaiah 45. It's a really neat story. It was snowing really hard, and he stumbled into a church as a young man that he wasn't even a part of. He didn't regularly attend, and, and when he got there, the pastor couldn't show up that day. He was snowed in. So they were sitting there staring at the front of the building, and somebody from the congregation just stood up, and by Charles Spurgeon's own admission, he gave a really unskilled message out of Isaiah 45, just the most basic gospel presentation you could think of, God used that to save Charles Spurgeon, and he used Charles Spurgeon to do a whole lot of work for his kingdom. And so when I approach those passages of Scripture, it just sort of, it warms me and it encourages me and it inspires me that this really is living and active. It really is sharper than any two-edged sword. And God meant it when he said, his word will not return void. So I say that to say that the commandment that we're studying today uh, it's, it's, um, I think our expectation should be raised when we approach it because this particular commandment, the 10th commandment, changed the life of a person who's largely considered to be the most effective missionary in the history of Christendom, that's the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but in Romans chapter 7, Paul is speaking autobiographically about how he came into the faith, how he became a follower of Jesus. And he said that before he met Jesus, he was, he hit the phrase he uses. He says, I was alive apart from the law. And what that means is growing up as a Pharisee, Paul had a base, he, he had a pretty decent self-image. He was able to face himself. He was able to face the world, confident that he was okay with God because he's looking around at other people. Nobody was trying as hard as he was. Nobody was living as good a life as he was. Nobody was keeping the, you know, all the, all the Old Testament laws like he was. So he figured if anybody's all right, I'm probably okay but what's really interesting is it's this commandment, the 10th commandment, that his words, he said it killed him. It, it, in the King James Version, he says it, it slew him. 
So evidently what was happening in Paul's life is he, not an uncommon thing for a Pharisee to do, he was kind of meditating on the Ten Commandments. He got through the first nine and he figured, I'm doing pretty good, I think I'm okay with God. But he got to the Tenth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment uh, brought him to the end of himself. And the reason it did that, and maybe you're asking, well, why the Tenth? And there is a certain uniqueness about this one. The first nine commandments can kind of be thought of in a moralistic way. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us that you really can't think of it that way. But Paul got through them and thought, well, I haven't killed anybody. I, I, do, you know, I try to honor my parents. But he got to the Tenth Commandment, and he realized that when God said, thou shalt not covet, he sat there long enough to realize that what God was actually commanding, God through the Tenth Commandment is commanding you and I to love him so deeply and to be so deeply satisfied by him that we are able to be perpetually content regardless of what we experience in this life. That's what the 10th commandment really is all about. And Paul had the security to face himself and realize, I'm nothing like that. And I can't simply decide to love God like that. So maybe I need a savior. And that realization led to this radical transformation in his life that we Christians call being born again. And so I've shared this little intro with you to make a, a really a, a singular point. I have great news. <clears throat> if, if you're here today for the very first time, you haven't you know, been a part of this series for the last nine weeks, comma, or if you have been a part of this series, but you have absolutely hated the last nine weeks and gotten nothing out of it whatsoever, the good news is this commandment that we're looking at alone has the power to change your life. This commandment actually has the power to kill you just like it did Paul, which would be the greatest possible thing that would ever happen to you because as C.S. Lewis once famously said, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised to life. So that being said, let's get to the passage that's going to help us understand what the 10th commandment is all about. Uh, I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14 ironically, also written by Paul. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. <clears throat> this is God's word. So, um, first question I wanted to address, why are, we, why are we in a passage that deals with contentment when we're talking about this command about coveting? Uh, to answer that question, we have to understand what coveting is, because when we understand what that is, I think the connection becomes clear. To covet something, covetousness in the biblical sense of the word is not simply desiring something. Uh, coveting is a, it's a posture of heart, follow me here, it's a posture of heart that's birthed from this inner emptiness that looks out in life, uh, at life and says, if I, um, and, unless I get you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is, then I'll be empty. Uh, covetousness is this posture of heart that basically, you know, and there's all kinds of manifestations of this. It's unless I get married, unless I get this relationship, unless I get this family, unless I get, you know, accepted by these people or into this school or into this stage of life or unless I you know, arrive at this point in my career, then I'll never be happy. 
I'll never feel like I arrived. My life will, I'll consider my life a failure. It didn't have any meaning. I'll never find joy or peace or rest, all that kind of stuff. With that in mind, a person who walks in obedience to the tenth commandment then is simply a person who is deeply content exactly where they stand. And so what we're looking at in this passage today, and I think this is so neat that God used Paul to give us these words, what we're looking at in this passage is Paul saying, after all these years, I finally learned the secret of contentment, meaning I finally became this person who can walk in obedience to the commandment that once upon a time killed me. And so with that in mind, I just want to ask three questions of this passage, simple questions that who knows, maybe they have the power to, to change our lives the way that it did Paul's. I want to ask, first off, what exactly is contentment? You know, what is this thing that Paul found in a jail cell that the Bible refers to as contentment? Secondly, what does contentment do? And then thirdly and lastly, how can contentment be ours? So with that, first and foremost, let's ask the question, what is contentment? If we're going to spend Sunday morning talking about it, we better figure out what it is. Contentment is really, um, I I don't think it's, it's all that easy to define. Uh, And I say that because you you already know this, but we're living in a culture that is absolutely addicted to instant gratification, where really discontentment is is rewarded. It's kind of celebrated. Um, So so we're living in a culture that, you know, discontentment is rampant and true contentment is really rare. And with that, I think a lot of times we we confuse contentment with something else because it, it has a lot of counterfeits that look like it but are not it. So let me begin by giving you three things that, that when the Bible talks about contentment, let me give you three things that contentment is not. And there's a chance that at least one of these is going to be kind of tailor-made for you. All right, first off, let's be clear, contentment is not happiness. It's not being happy about what's going on around you. Uh, Paul, it's safe to say, was not thrilled when he wrote this letter. He wasn't thrilled to be where he was. He was you know, if you know anything about Paul, he was kind of genetically engineered to uh, hit the road and engage the major cities of the Roman Empire with this absolutely God-given ability to communicate the gospel in a persuasive way. Uh, I got my degree from, from uh, Moody uh, um, Institute in Chicago, and one of the books that I got assigned for my degree program is called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And it's just an in-depth dive into how Paul so effectively reached people and cities and ultimately an empire with the gospel. The point is, here we are 2,000 years after Paul lived and died. We're still trying to figure out how he did what he did because he was that good at what he did. And he, and he loved doing what he did. I mean, it's absolutely what, what gave his life meaning. It's what caused him to burn with passion. And yet, I don't know if you've heard this before, maybe you have, maybe not, When Paul was writing the letter that we know as Philippians, he was doing so from a Roman jail cell, chained to a Roman soldier. Not, I mean, any day that door could have swung open and he would find out this is his last day on planet Earth. The point is, when Paul wrote about contentment, he was in a place where he was unable to do what he knew God put him on Earth to do. So, just let me make that personal for you for a moment. I don't know. Maybe you haven't answered that question yet, but for those of you that have, I don't know what it is that you feel like God has put you here to do. You know, what, what causes you to burn with passion when you do it or when you even think about doing it. But can you just imagine for a moment what it would be like to have that taken from you and there's nothing that you can do about it. You have no recourse. That's where Paul was. Point is, he was not happy and yet he was content. And so contentment is not happiness. Secondly, however, contentment is also not denial. Meaning contentment is not something you arrive at by, you know, plugging your ears, closing your eyes, and pretending your life is easier or, 
not as bad as it actually is. It's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not about denial. The reason I bring this up is because I, I think a lot of times we convince ourselves that we're content when the truth is we just don't have the courage to face our reality as it is. Uh, and, and so we try to play pretend with our feelings. And I'll, I'll just offer to you, even a cursory read through the book of Psalms shows us God never asks us to do that. In fact, he requires us to do the opposite of that. You read through 150 Psalms, and it's, it's prayer after prayer of the psalmist bringing unfiltered uh, thoughts, opinions, ideas, and emotions as ugly and volatile as they sometimes can be into the presence of God, which is the only safe, the only safe place for what's going on in our own hearts. And so secondly, contentment is not denial. But, but thirdly, and if you're like me, this will mean the most to you. This one meant the most to me. Contentment is also not complacency. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity, that it is, it is possible, and maybe this is where some of us are right now, it is possible to arrive at a, at a place in your life where you have been so beat down by disappointment and discouragement and disillusionment that you just stop caring. Uh, it, it's, it's the place in life where, where somewhere along the way you just kind of flip this switch and, and you tell yourself, Hey, I used to have hopes and dreams. I used to have a, an idea. I used to have a goal. Nothing has gone the way that I want it to. My life has not turned out the way that I wanted it to. So I'm just going to stop caring because if I don't care, I can't be disappointed anymore. On the surface, that can look a lot like contentment. However, it is a far cry from what the Bible's talking about. I just want to be clear. Contentment is light years away from simply a passive, uh, complacent resignation of where you are. And the reason we know that is because just a few verses before Paul speaks of his contentment in chapter 4, he says this. This is chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And pay real careful attention to his phrasing here. Paul says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm fully mature, but listen to this. I make every effort to take hold of it because I've also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by Christ's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. You read those words, it's obvious. Paul is not beat down by his life. You know, Paul is full of fire. He's full of vigor. He's, he's actually, it's safe to say, he is far from satisfied with how far the kingdom of God has advanced in his own life or how far it advanced in, in the churches that he was the apostle over, or how far it had advanced in the world at large. He's not satisfied, and yet he's complacent. Uh, pardon me, he's content. And so contentment, whatever it is, it is certainly not complacency. So let me recap here. If contentment is not being happy about what's going on around you, it's not denying what's going on around you, and it's not being complacent about what's going on around you, million-dollar question, what actually is it? The word that Paul uses for contentment here, uh, interestingly enough, it's, it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It comes from a Greek word, archaeo, uh, and the definition of this word is, uh, the very first definition is to be possessed of unfailing strength. I want to be real clear here. The definition of this word Paul uses, the definition is not possessing unfailing strength. It's being possessed by in unfailing strength. Point is, uh, uh, Paul, when he talks about contentment, he's not talking about something he was able to generate within himself. He's talking about something that necessarily had to come from outside of him. Contentment didn't become his when he grabbed a hold of something 
It became his when he finally allowed something to grab a hold of him. So when we talk about contentment from here on out, if, if you want to like succinctly define it, it's an unfailing strength that possesses you. That's what contentment is. All right, secondly, let's ask the question, what does contentment do? We have a great answer to that question uh, here in verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Read this to you. Paul says, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Verse 12, I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. What, what Paul's given us there is a, um, it's a very clear and very succinct definition of how contentment actually works. And with that, uh, he's given us kind of an uncomfortable litmus test for you and I to measure our lives against that'll tell us whether or not we actually have what he's talking about here, all right? First off, when Paul says, I know how to have a little or, or a lot, I know how to be well-fed or hungry, I, I have to imagine, because as a Pharisee, Paul was such an expert in you know, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that Paul, when he wrote those words, he was thinking of this famous prayer in the book of Proverbs. I've read this to you before. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. I've always loved this prayer. It says, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. That, that prayer is written by a man named Agur, who understood, obviously he was a wise enough individual for his thoughts to be recorded in the premier book of wisdom, Proverbs. This is, a, this is an individual who was wise enough to understand that both extremes in life, both extremes in life, both profound adversity but also um, profound success, uh, the, the, the lows and the highs, uh, either being in poverty or, you know, having excessive wealth, both of those extremes are equally dangerous to, dangerous to the human heart for different reasons. Uh, and and, he, and he, he walks through it here in a way that, I mean, he, it's just impossible to disagree with. The great temptation, he's saying, that, that when, when, a, when a human heart experiences profound adversity, the great temptation for us, and I say this realizing that is probably where some of you are right now, the great temptation when God walks us through that is for us to take matters into our own hands and to justify any kind of behavior with this mindset that, hey, life hasn't been fair to me. You know, I've tried to do things God's way. That hasn't worked out for me. Now we're going to try to do things my way. That's the great temptation for the human heart in profound adversity. However, the other side of that coin, uh, it, not when we're in um, adversity, but when we're in uh, profound prosperity, uh, the great temptation is simply to forget about God altogether. And to kind of start believing our own hype and believe that, that where we are in life, all of our uh, success, all of our achievements, every good thing that we have is exclusively owed to our brilliance and our cunning. It's this idea that says, hey, I got a great marriage. I got a great family. My, my kids have turned out well. I haven't had a whole lot of hiccups. I see other people, their lives are falling apart. I got a great life. It must be because I'm a great person. So I can see why other people might have a need for God in this kind of born-again experience. I'm actually doing well in my first life. I don't need a second one kind of thing. That's the idea. I think we're a culture filled with that side of the equation more often than not. And so Agur is, is praying this prayer birthed from this knowledge. He's saying, God, just keep me from either one of these extremes in life because I'm not sure I can handle it. Here's what Paul's saying. This is kind of amazing to me. Paul is saying, if you have contentment, you don't have to pray that prayer. 
If you have contentment, you can handle either extreme in life. You don't have to pray that God keeps you away from them because contentment will allow you to walk through them and be completely unchanged by them. So here's what this means. And here's where this probably, you know, gets a little uncomfortable for some of us. Based on Paul's words, this means that if you, if you can look back on your life and, and, and you know at one point in your life you had contentment, but then you experienced a great deal of prosperity and that prosperity changed you, you never had contentment. Similar, you know, opposite side of the coin, but, but, but same, essence of the same idea. If at one point in your life you had contentment, but then you experienced profound loss, profound adversity, and that adversity, it did what adversity tends to do. It made you bitter, either, to, you know, toward God, toward yourself, toward others who have been spared what you've gone through. What that means is you never had contentment. What you had, this is an uncomfortable truth, you had a lot of ugliness in your life that had yet to be brought to the surface by the pressures and the stresses and the extremes of life, but what you did not have was contentment, according to Paul. Because according to Paul's definition of contentment here, he's saying that if you have what the Bible defines as contentment, and God sees fit to walk you through a period of time in your life where everything is up and to the right, relationally, financially, personally, spiritually, whatever, then you'll be able to walk through that and it won't go to your head. It won't, that, that, that prosperity will not make you ugly the way that it's made so many people ugly historically. And the opposite side of that coin is that if you have what the Bible calls contentment and God sees fit to walk you through a period of time in your life where nothing is going your way in any area of your life, you just, you're, you're, the, you're the modern day Job, it won't go to your heart. Success won't go to your head, adversity won't go to your heart. You won't, you won't get bitter at God. You won't, get, you won't hate yourself and believe that it's all on you. You're not going to hate people that have a better life than you. You'll be able to walk through that well knowing deep in your heart of hearts that you are not less just because you have experienced loss. So when you talk about contentment, what does it actually do? The way that the Bible describes contentment, it's, a, it's almost a superpower. Contentment is a suit of armor around your heart that allows you to experience everything this life has without it defining you, without it touching you without it controlling you or changing who you are. So when, I really do think this is important. A lot of times, at least speaking personally, a lot of times I can get in the habit of, of assuming that contentment is just complacency. And contentment are these people that are just kind of, you know, like floating through life. They're just kind of along for the ride. That's not the biblical definition of contentment. Content, people with contentment can be incredibly ambitious. The difference is they don't need success like it's an idol and they're not terrified of failure like it's a death. They're just free from being controlled by it all. Now, when you understand what the Bible's talking about there, I think it's pretty clear. Everybody in their right mind would want this. When Paul says, you know, he begins this section by saying, I'm not saying this out of need. You know, thanks for this gift that you all sent me, but I'm not saying this out of need. I just, I mean, who likes being needy? Who, who likes moving through life constantly derailed by the highs and lows of life or the thoughts and the opinions of other people or, you know, the stock market or your business or your, your relationships, whatever it is. Nobody likes being a product of their circumstances. Everybody would love to become the kind of person that Paul is saying he figured out how to become in this Roman jail cell. The question is, how can that happen to you and I? And I figured I'd end our time together this morning and end this series by answering that question. I want to look, based on, just, just based on what Paul says here in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14, I see three ideas, three things that you and I need to understand 
if we want to become people of contentment. <clears throat> and there, I don't think any of them are particularly fun or what we'd want to hear, but let's just get into it. The first thing, and I think this is the most foundational that we can see in this passage that we have to understand, is that becoming a person of contentment is a process. Right, you, you notice here, Paul does not just, he could have, but Paul does not just say, hey, I'm content. He doesn't say that. It's a very strange way that he phrased it. He said, I have learned the secret of contentment. Probably didn't mean a whole lot to us other than the fact that it sounds strange some 2,000 years later. The people in Philippi knew what point Paul was trying to make. The Greek word he uses here when he talks about learning the secret, the Greek word he uses here was used in, in, in the Greek mystery religions of his day to describe people who'd worked their way up through the lower levels and, and been granted admission to the full position, possession of the secret itself. We actually have a modern-day equivalent of this. I don't know if you know anything about Scientology, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert. Where the heck is Ryan going with this? Hang on, church. I'll get there. A couple of years ago, I watched a documentary on Amazon about Scientology, and it was really eye-opening you know, all these eyewitness accounts, apparently the way that it worked is, is a lot like these, these Greek mystery religions where you kind of started as a, you know, representative. I don't know what the title is, but you're, you're a low-level acolyte. And in order to progress, you've got you to do a, a whole lot of unpaid labor and you've got to, you know, shell out a lot of coin. And, and as you sort of climb the ladder of Scientology, you know, they were saying that you would get acts, you, you, you'd be able to read documents that, you know, you couldn't see until you got to level two or whatever it was. And the, the higher you climbed, the more you got, you know, the, into the inner circle and, you know, to the secret hidden knowledge that I guess only Tom Cruise and John Travolta ultimately had access to. I'm not even saying that necessarily as a joke. I think that's actually how it happened. But the point is, there were a lot of Greek mystery religions in Paul's day that worked exactly like that. When Paul says, I had to learn the secret of contentment, they knew what he meant. His point is, contentment did not get zapped into his heart overnight. It wasn't like he prayed this prayer and then God said, okay, Paul, you got it. So I was curious and I, I decided to do some research. I wanted to know how long had Paul been a Christian when he wrote these words to the Philippians? And, and, uh, and I found out, maybe this is going to be amazing to you as it was to me, from the time that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, the day that he really became a Christian, to the time that he wrote to the Philippians saying, I finally learned the secret of contentment, that took 30 years to get there. 30 years for Paul to get there. That's what I mean when I say it's a process. And this is something that the Bible is trying to get us to understand just all over the place. Right? When I was thinking about this idea, it, it dawned on me. There's a reason in John's gospel account when Jesus is giving us all these metaphors for what he's like so that we can understand who he is and how we relate to him. There's a reason that Jesus told, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. In a similar way, there's a reason that Paul at the end of Galatians, when he describes the tangible outworking of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in a man or woman's life, he calls that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And in the same way, there's a reason that the, the book of Psalms, the prayer book in the Word of God, it begins, Psalm chapter 1, with this promise that the person who delights in God's law and meditates on it will become like a tree. And with all these allusions to vegetation, you know, the, the vines, the branches, the fruit, the trees, what all those are trying to get us to understand is this idea that becoming a person who reflects the character and nature of God Becoming a person of depth and wisdom and strength and courage and love, and in this case, contentment, it is a process. 
For Paul, it took 30 years to get to the point where he feel, felt like he, he had this one commandment down. And I, I, I say that realizing nobody's excited to hear an idea like that sounds like really bad news. It, it sounds discouraging in a culture, as, as I said, as addicted to instant gratification as ours. I actually think it, this is one of the most encouraging things to say about contentment or Christian growth in general. And here's why. I did not share this story with the 9 a.m., Exclusive content coming your way, all right? Yes, yes. What if you listened to the 9 a.m. and found out I lied about that? Oh, man. Wouldn't that be terrible? It's, it's not. I'm telling the truth. I just celebrated my, my 10th anniversary with my wife. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I have amazing in-laws, and, and so they, they uh, watched the kids uh, for a few days so Katie and I could get out of Dodge and... Uh, in, you know, take a moment and just kind of, you know, reflect on the last 10 years. It's been, it's been an amazing 10 years. And uh, when we got back in town, um, I'm going to find out if this is a safe place in about a minute here. Um, when, when we got back in town, I, uh, and we got settled in, in, in you know, back in, in Maryland in our house, um, I had something weighing on my mind. And, and so uh, I said, Kate, I got to talk to you. And I apologized to her. I said, I feel like I need to apologize to her because I feel like I wasted that whole vacation. I feel like I wasted the whole 10-year anniversary vacation. Um, because we got away and, you know, I had all these thoughts and, and, and ideas and, 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 you know, we're going to have a great time and I'm going to finally rest and I'm going to put, you know, work where it belongs and I'm just going to be with my wife. And, I, and in my estimation, I completely failed to do that. I feel like I was irritable. I feel like I was anxious. I feel like I wasn't present. Like my mind was on my inbox and waiting for what emails are waiting for me or meetings I got to have or challenges I got to face or people I can't make happy no matter what I do. And I allowed that to take me out of what, a bit, what should have been just the number of days that I celebrate with my wife and bask in the goodness of God. And so I just apologized to her. And praise God, he gave me an extremely gracious and encouraging wife. And she actually said exactly what I'm telling you now, that, hey, fruit of the Spirit takes time to grow. But what I basically said to her was, I wish I was better than I am. And I thought I would have been better by now. Uh, can anybody relate to that? Okay, all right, we're all going to start a small group this semester and talk about it then. Um, if you, I'll just be perfectly blunt. If you can't relate to that, I can't relate to you, okay? I, I, think, I think everybody who's walked with Jesus for any length of time and has any level of self-awareness, eventually, and, and maybe over and over again in their life, I don't think I'm crazy. I think this is the human condition, all right? I think that over and over again, we arrive at this point where something brings us to the end of ourselves, and we just, we're left thinking, I thought I'd be better by now. I thought I'd be better at handling this thing called life. I thought I'd be better at dealing with stress. I thought I'd be better as a spouse, as a parent, more, more gentle, more kind, more, more content, you know, if we're, if we're talking about that on Sunday morning. And the, and the point is, the reason that's so painful for us and so discouraging for us is because we've forgotten that this thing is a process, that it takes a lot of time to grow a plant. It takes even longer to grow a person. So it, when you talk about becoming a person of contentment, it's a process. That's not discouraging. What, what discourages us is when we think it's anything other than that. Nobody teleports down the path of their own personal sanctification process. All right? Thank you for coming to my group therapy session. Let's move on to point two now. Uh, obviously, that idea, although it's maybe helpful, it, it certainly leaves the question, well, what is this process like? And that's, that's, that's the other thing that Paul tells us here. Not just that it took a lot of time for him to get contentment down, but he tells us what this process is like. This is probably where this teaching gets a little bit more personal for some people. 
What Paul says here is that the process of becoming a person of contentment is a process that requires extremes. Here's what I mean. Verse 12, it says, I know both how to have a little, I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Let me just draw your attention to this one particular statement I just read. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Another way to phrase that is Paul saying, because God led me through any and all circumstances, I was able to figure out this thing called contentment. He's saying, I needed God to lead me through all kinds of circumstances to become the person that writes this letter to you today. And here's the point. It's no different for you and I. All right. This Tuesday, I was reading, Tuesday morning, if memory serves, I was reading in uh, Psalm chapter 9. And I just, let me just read the first two verses to you. It starts off, it says, I will thank Yahweh with all my heart. I'll declare all your wonderful works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. Obviously, that psalm is written from this place where God had, had just come through in an obvious way you know, in the psalmist's life, and so he's just taking the time to dwell on that and be thankful for that. And so I decided to take my cue from the word of God and just start my morning thinking about how good he's been to me and how much there is to be thankful for in my life and my family's life. And we got a lot of new things happening you know, my wife and I, and, and all of it is encouraging. Katie actually just recently started two new jobs. Seems like she really enjoys them, and, you know, she, she's thriving in that. In my personal life, I just had this outside the church. I just had this really cool opportunity kind of fall into my lap, which I think is just right on time, and, and God's going to use it to, to teach me what he wants to teach me in some, in some neat ways. Of course, as a church, we got a lot of new stuff happening. we got a brand-new associate pastor named, named Anthony Hall. He's doing a great job. And, and it's, you know, this is the, the last Sunday of August. It, it it was Tuesday morning that I kind of picked my head up and realized we baptized 21 people this summer. That's really cool to think about. Like, there's a lot of things to be thankful for. So I, 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 was, I was sitting just doing what the psalmist did. I continued reading through the rest of the psalm. Let me read verse 13 of the same psalm to you now. He says, Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death. That's not the next psalm. That's just, that's just the next verse in the same psalm. So, so what you're reading here is completely out of nowhere. The author winds up going from the peak to the valley. And one of the points of Psalm 9 is to simply remind us that's what life is like. And there's not a single exception to this to any man or woman that God had dealings with as recorded in Scripture. Let me just give you four examples of this. Take Joseph for one. One day Joseph is on top of the world wearing this robe that his father gave him. The next day he's betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. And, and eff effectively, he's put in this crucible of injustice that stole years, maybe decades of his life from him. That's the story of Joseph. Right? You have Moses. One day Moses is enjoying all the benefits and all the privilege of being adopted into the Pharaoh's family. He's in the palace. The next day, because he tries to stand up for one of his countrymen who's being oppressed... He now needs to flee into the wilderness where he winds up losing no less than 40 years of his life for doing the right thing. You, or you think about King David. One day he is slaying Goliath. All Israel knows and, and celebrates his name. The next day he's, he's running for his life from King Saul, getting ready to be slain by the king that he just laid his life down for. Here's probably the most meaningful to me, Elijah. 
If you, if you read Elijah's star, story start to finish, it's amazing how, how just painfully realistic it is. One moment, Elijah is calling down fire from heaven. This man is a physical conduit of the power and glory of God. And about a half hour later, later he is so depressed. You can read this, and in, 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 if anybody's depressed today, I just, there's a lot of people in the Bible that you can relate to. You can read this in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, right after Elijah calls down fire from heaven. In, in 1 Kings 19, this is a direct quote. He is so depressed, he calls out to God and he says, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. You zoom out from those stories and it just begs the question, what is going on there? And he, it, what's going on there is life. That's what life is. That's how God has been dealing with people ever since God has been dealing with people. That's how he grows us. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's being brought from the peak to the valley. It's being brought from the high place to the low place. It's being brought from being well-fed to, to going hungry, from being in abundance to, to, to scarcity over and over again. That's how God deals with us to get us where we need to go. And so I say that to say, let me just speak to two people this morning. I'm sure that there's a number of people that when you kind of reflect on your life, you're in that place right now. You know, you can sympathize a little bit with Paul in a jail cell. God has brought you from the peak to the valley in some area of your life. And if that's where you're coming from, I just, I just hope you realize what God is doing in your life right now, maybe what he's been doing for a real long time, is exactly what he has done in the lives of every single man and woman that he has ever done anything in and through. There's no exceptions to that. And I say that not to say, not to belittle what you're going through or to say get over it. I, I say that to say you need to know what you're going through is not weird and it is not meaningless. Daniel needed his lion's den, just like Jonah needed his whale, just like Paul needed his thorn in the flesh. This has just been a part of the path for every single man and woman that has entered into a life-changing, life-shaping encounter with their creator. This is what it's always been. And secondly, to people who don't know what that's like because you're on the peak. I'm sure that there's at least a number of people listening to this right now. You're not really in the valley. Your life's going great. And if that's where you're coming from, I just want to say, keep that to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what it's not. I'm just kidding. If that's where you're coming from, because I'm sure there is a number of people that, you know, you've got problems. It's not perfect, but you have a pretty good life. Paul's words here are a, a reminder in Scripture to tell you not to get comfortable where you are so that you're not surprised when things change. Because, and this is Paul's point, it's the changes. It's the being brought from the peak to the valley. It's, it's from success to failure. It's the high place to the low place, in and out of that, over and over and over. That's what God uses to bring to the surface what needs to be dealt with in us so that we can become the people he desires us to be. And if you're like me, I've asked this question before, maybe you're asking it now, especially if you're in that low place, it sort of raises the question, well, why does God do it like that? You know, if he, really, if he really is this loving father, if he really is this benevolent kind, then why does he do this? Why does he lead us in and out of, of, of the high and the low and the good and the bad and bring us to the end of ourselves over and over? Why doesn't God just show up and tell us what we need to hear? Here's the answer. Because you and I don't learn like that. <laughs> if we did, he would, but we don't, so he doesn't. <laughs> I'll just tell you what you already know. There, no one has ever learned that they're a sinner by being told. No one, just like the other side of that coin, no one has ever learned, you know, I know you know this, no one has ever learned that they are loved simply by being told, you gotta be shown. 
And in a similar way, no one has ever grown because somebody walked up to him and said, hey, you need to grow. Grow up. You know, you, you're, you're so needy. You're asking everything and everyone else to be and do what only Jesus can be for you. That's the real reason you're miserable. That call's coming from inside the house. You need to be content in Christ. Nobody has ever become a person of contentment like that. We need to be shown. And the point is, it's the high places, it's the peaks of life where God sometimes allows us to get what we've been chasing so we can hold it in our hands and realize it's not enough to satisfy me. And it's the valleys of life where God either denies our request and doesn't give us the thing that we've been after or else allows us to lose the thing that we've told ourselves we need. God allows us to move, move through places like that so that we can wake up one day and realize I'm still breathing. I guess I didn't need that as much as I thought I did. I guess I just need him. It's being brought in and out of that over and over again that was necessary, not just for Paul, but for all of us. Now, final thing before we conclude here. As important as that is, as much as that process of peaks and valleys has the, has the potential to grow us, it doesn't happen automatically. Of course not. If it did, then, then theoretically, everybody who lived long enough would become this great person of contentment that Paul became after 30 years of walking with Jesus. And I don't have to, it's quite obvious to me, you look around our culture, there's not a whole lot of Pauls walking around today. I don't see an epidemic of contentment breaking out anytime soon. Quite the opposite. And the reason for that is because there's something else that's necessary in order for you and I to become people of contentment. This is the, the last idea that I'll leave you with today. It'll be the final idea of our law school series. <clears throat> it's that becoming a person of contentment ultimately requires a personal encounter with Jesus. This brings us to the most famous verse in this passage and maybe the whole Bible. I'm sure you've seen it on at least a few tattoos. Philippians 4.13, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is saying there, that's the real secret of contentment. It's not just a lot of time and it's not just a lot of peaks and valleys. It's a deeply personal, life-changing, need-meeting encounter with the only one who will ever satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. And we're almost done. We're almost concluded our time together. Um, but before I go, I, j I just wanted to kind of let you behind the scenes here. I have, um, I have, as long as I've been preaching, I have struggled with this particular passage of Philippians. Uh, the first time that I, this is actually the third time that I'm preaching on this, this particular text, Philippians 4, 10 to 14. And the first time that I did was back in 2015. And I remember almost kind of having a breakdown as that Sunday was approaching where I was just racking my brain and I could not figure out to do what, what to do with this passage, where to go with it. And maybe, you know, to you, I just, you know, it seems obvious. It's one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture. What was so difficult? Let me just let you into my head. To me, what Paul is doing here is he's just saying, I've learned this secret. I have met Jesus in a way, frees me of need frees me of worry, frees me of anxiety. I'm happier than you all, and I'm inside of a jail cell. And then he, he just kind of moves on. And, and you know, I was, I, was, I was studying that. I'm just being perfectly candid with you. The first thought that kept coming to my mind is that's really not helpful to anybody other than Paul. I mean it. Like, this is the equivalent of just imagine the 9 a.m. like this. Imagine walking into a counselor's office 
where your life is in shambles. You are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Totally at the end of your rope, and you, you, I mean, you go in, and it's a 30-minute monologue, and you dump everything on the table. What do I do, doc? You got to help me. Tell me what I need to hear. Fix me. And you look up, and the counselor says, I got to tell you, my life is amazing. And that concludes the time that we have today. I will see you the same time so it just, that's, that's what it looked like to me. But I read some commentaries on this passage, and it was something that John Stott said that, that really got a hold of me and kind of blew open my understanding of, of really the, the whole purpose of this passage. John Stott said that the reason that Paul talks like this about, about how, how strengthened he is by Jesus, about how, uh, how free he is by Jesus, about the fact that he has finally learned this secret, he's not saying that to rub it in your face. He's trying to get you to ask the question, have I? Have I learned that secret? Have I met Jesus that way? I just ask you to consider. Again, we're almost done, but can you imagine what it was like to be the original recipients of this letter? The people in the church at Philippi, however big or small that community was at this point, who knows? But can you imagine them, their beloved apostle, they know Paul is, is in jail in Rome. They have no idea. It's not like you're getting updates they have no idea if the Roman emperor woke up one day, had a bad day, and decided, I feel like murdering Paul today. They don't know if he's alive. And then one day, a, a letter arrives. Turns out it's from Paul. Oh, my goodness, he's alive. And they're, you know, they're thumbing through the thing, and they can't wait to see what did, what did Paul say, you know, how bad is it, you know, and how miserable is he, and whatever. And, and, and the way that things work, they would open up the letter, and they read it to the congregation. Can you imagine what, what the congregation must have thought, what was going on in their lives individually when it slowly dawned on every man and woman in the Philippian congregation that here Paul was in a jail cell and he was freer than they were. I bet you could hear a pin drop when they were done with Philippians. And so I say this to say that in this, in this particular passage, this isn't about Paul bragging about his life. And it's definitely not Paul giving you a step-by-step -step formulaic technique so that you can get to where he is. This is Paul letting you behind the scenes in his life so that you can finally get honest about what's going on in yours. That's the whole purpose of this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and, and we'll conclude this series. I just want to give you the opportunity to do what this, what this text is designed to get us to do. Let me just ask you, would you please, as we close today and finish this series and move on to whatever we got seven days from now, would you ask yourself the question, have you met Jesus in a way that so frees you and so strengthens you that you can face anything in this life. Let me get real personal here. Have you encountered Jesus in a way that enables you to face what's really going on in your marriage? Or to face the fact that, that you're single and you, you, so, you so badly want to be married, but you're not. Have you met Jesus in a way that enables you to face what's, what's going on with your kids and, and the very real possibility that maybe they, they don't turn out the way that you want them to turn out and you can't change that? You can't decide what kind of person they're going to be. You can't control them. Have you encountered Jesus in a way that enables you to really face yourself in all of the things that are so hard for us to admit that are still rolling around in our own hearts? or this, this is the last one, and maybe this is, this is one for all of us, have you encountered Jesus in a way that allows you to face the very real possibility that your life just is not going to go the way that you thought it was going to go?
way you thought it was supposed to go. You know, there's a good chance that you had plans for your life and God has plans for your life and his plans don't line up with yours. I think every single one of us has to figure out how to come to terms with that in this thing that we call life eventually. The question is, have you encountered Jesus in a way that allows you to face, allows you to handle anything? I think if we all sat on that question long enough and answered it honestly just between us and God, every single person listening to this falls into one of two camps. There's those of us that would say, I need to have an encounter with Jesus like that for the very first time. And there's those of us that would say, I need to encounter him like that one more time. It is so meaningful to me. I almost didn't see this until literally until the 9 a.m. service. But in Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens. That's present tense. That's not a past tense verb. Paul's not saying, I got what I needed from Jesus 30 years ago. My tank is full and I'm good. This is Paul saying, I need to experience my Savior daily. Sometimes moment by moment, it's no different for you and I. And that realization finally, that's where this passage is designed to take us, to this place of total dependency on Jesus, where we have the humility and the wherewithal to admit, I just don't have what it takes to face everything this life is going to throw at me without it turning me into somebody I don't want to be. And what you and I need more than anything else is to have a deeply personal, life-changing encounter with Jesus. We need the contentment that can only come from getting our needs met in him. And whatever our heavenly father has to do to us, whatever he needs to lead us through, whatever jail cells he needs to throw us in, whatever peaks and valleys he needs to bring us in and out of, so long as it leads us to Jesus, it'll be worth it. That's the secret of contentment. Thank you for joining us for law school. That's it, and that's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there are few few topics as convicting to me as contentment. This is this this command to not covet, and all that it actually means. Um, it's a command that brings us to the end of ourselves if we're willing to be honest. And I'd ask God that as we close this series out, that we would be honest before you. God, please do through the 10th commandment what you did in the life of your servant, Paul. Please bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can finally get to Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe just for the next time. Please show us in more than an intellectual way that it is a relationship with Jesus Christ alone that will satisfy the deep needs of our heart. Please rid us of... of, of uh, of idolatry, of, of looking to other things and other people to be and do what only he can be, be and do for us, God. And whatever it is that you got to lead us through to get us to that place, to rid us of all the things that are keeping us from knowing him, just please help us to know that, that you're holding us by the hand, that you love us, that you're working things out for our good. Please bring us to Jesus over and over and over again. It's in his name we pray. God's people said, amen. <laughs>